Welcome to the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast. This podcast focuses on financial planning and investment topics. Our goal is to help you make better financial decisions. We are fierce advocates of fiduciary advice. What does fiduciary mean? It means that anyone who advises you should always put your needs first. We hope you get some value from this episode. Thanks for listening. Standard housekeeping, anything on the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast should not be considered individual financial planning or investment advice. For that, we recommend you consult your own properly registered and licensed professional. Welcome to episode 27. I'm Brian Beasley, and with me again is Dan Alberts. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. So we're reading the book, The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. It's one of my most highly recommended books in the last year. And if you haven't listened to part one in episode 26, please stop now and go back and listen to that. We're continuing on with part two today in episode 27. Jumping right into it. People underestimate the need for room for error in almost everything they do that involves money. Stock analysts give their clients price targets, not price ranges. Economic forecasters predict things with precise figures, rarely broad probabilities. The pundit who speaks in unshakable certainties will gain a larger following than one who says, we can't know for sure and speaks in probabilities. He spends a significant amount of time here talking about room for error. And this doesn't mean somebody's a bearish person all the time. He's just saying this is the statistical reality of investing over long periods of time. Stuff's going to happen. So this, of all the things, I think room for error deserves the most attention and thought as people are putting together their portfolio or their investment plan, their financial plan. Like we were talking about earlier, you need to avoid financial ruin. <laughs> you get ruined, you're out of the game. So, you know, some areas where you can allow for room for error. One is volatility. We talked about this when we were talking about risk in our last series. Into the book here. Can you survive your assets declining by 30%? Maybe yes, in terms of actually paying your bills and staying cash flow positive. But what about mentally? Spreadsheets are good at telling you when the numbers do or don't add up. They're not good at modeling how you'll feel when you tuck your kids in at night wondering if the investment decisions you've made were a mistake that will hurt their future. Nassim Taleb says, you can be risk-loving and yet completely averse to ruin. And indeed, you should. The idea is that you have to take risk to get ahead, but no risk that can wipe you out is ever worth taking. The odds are in your favor when playing Russian roulette, but the downside is not worth the upside. There is no margin of safety that can compensate for that risk. It's the same with money. The odds of many lucrative things are in your favor. Real estate prices go up in most years, and during most years, you'll get a paycheck every other week. But if something has 95% odds of being right, the 5% odds of being wrong means you will almost certainly experience the downside at some point in your life. And if the cost of the downside is ruin, the upside the other 95% of the time likely isn't worth the risk, no matter how appealing it looks. A couple examples. Housing prices fell 30% last decade. A few companies defaulted on their debt. Hey, that's capitalism. It happens. 
but those with high leverage had a double wipeout. Not only were they left broke, but being wiped out erased every opportunity to get back in the game at the very moment the opportunity was ripe. A homeowner wiped out in 2009 had no chance of taking advantage of the cheap mortgage rates in 2010. Lehman Brothers had no chance of investing in cheap debt in 2009. They were done. Room for error does more than just widen the target around what you think might happen. It also helps protect you from things you'd never imagine, which can be the most troublesome events we face. We were talking about surprises in the last episode. Funny thing, the younger people are, the less they think surprises are going to happen. I don't meet a lot of people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, our clients that, are, that believe plan A is the way it's simply going to work out. They recognize you need to have a plan B, a plan C, a plan D. It just seems to be more common. Maybe you just have to live through this. Back to the book. Avoiding unknown risks is almost by definition impossible. You can't prepare for what you can't envision. If there's one way to guard against their damage, it's avoiding single points of failure. A good rule of thumb for a lot of things in life is that everything that can break will eventually break. Hey, that's Murphy's Law. Hmm. Back to the book. So if many things rely on one thing working and that one thing breaks, you're simply counting the days to catastrophe. That's a single point of failure. When I was reading the news this morning, there was a headline that there were um, multiple company, government websites around the world that were all down because of a single cloud company's uh, provider. They had a problem and it shut all these websites down across the board for a period of time. That's, and I thought that's a single point of failure. But he's right, you know, Murphy's Law. Something's gonna go wrong with something that you have. And if everything you have in the whole world depends on one thing working, eventually it won't. And then what? Number two, back to the book. The biggest single point of failure with money is a sole reliance on a paycheck to fund short-term spending needs with no savings to create a gap between what you think your expenses are and what they might be in the future. We talk about this all the time. You need to have an emergency fund. It's if a, a basic emergency fund is, is simple. Folks that are salespeople have a hard time with this. They, they generally don't save enough, in my experience, and when they need something there's an emergency or something happens their answer to the problem is i'm going to sell more and that's how i'm going yeah, I just to go make fund that new car or fund that right. refrigerator that just broke just go make a few more calls and you'll you'll make more money that's that's you see that quite often and there's other things beyond just the the the, the short-term spending things there's also other things you know you can have a single point of failure that's a big life-altering event and we have an entire industry of centered around solving those problems, the insurance industry. And you can say what you want about the insurance industry, but it saves people's financial situation over and over again. Uh, you talk about things like heavy medical bills or a car accident or uh, damage to your home. But also if you're disabled, there's insurance for all these things that we talk about. If somebody dies early or if there's a major illness, or if somebody needs long-term care, all these things could be catastrophic financially but recognizing that you know, room for error could just simply be you pay an insurance premium. It can really help out if you're 
covering some of those things that can ruin you. It just makes sense. It doesn't have to be a high probability that it's going to happen. A low probability event, however low the probability, if the impact is high enough, then you might consider taking that into account. Back to the book. It can't be overstated. There is no greater force in finance than room for error. And the higher the stakes, the wider that room for error should be. A gap between what could happen in the future and what you need to happen in the future to, in order to do well is what gives you the endurance. And endurance is what makes compounding magic over time. Room for error often looks like a conservative hedge, but if it keeps you in the game, it can pay for itself many times over. Again, we get in our own way mentally, or we don't plan ahead for the uncertainties out there, and it takes us out of the game for a year, for two years, whatever it is. We've seen people where they didn't understand the room for error, and they, quote, got conservative at the bottom of the market in 2008, and they never got back in, and they lost several years of really good returns before they got their confidence back. Anything that can keep you in the game or somebody that has an unexpected expense and they're calling us up and they're having to remove money from their IRA account because they, they have an expense that they didn't account for. That's where they didn't have a room for error. If you're pulling money from your 401k or taking a loan from your 401k, you can, you can rationalize it all the live long day that you're going to pay yourself back at a high interest rate. You're going to do well in the end, but um, it, that also assumes that you're going to have lower expenses than anticipated in the future so that you can pay off that loan. There's hundreds of examples. The other thing he talks about here is how you need to understand that when you're investing, there's a fee for admission to those long-term returns that are so good. And that, that compounding return, I'd call it volatility and, and uncertainty. This from the book, the S&P 500 index increased 119-fold in the 50 years ending 2018. All you had to do was sit back and let your money compound. But, of course, successful investing looks easy when you're not the one doing it. Quote, hold stocks for the long run, you'll hear. It's good advice. But do you know how hard it is to maintain a long-term outlook when stocks are collapsing? Like everything else worthwhile, successful investing demands a price. But its currency is not dollars and cents. It's volatility, fear, doubt, uncertainty, and regret. All of which are easy to overlook when you're dealing with them real time. And I would add, you're dealing with them in real time with real money. The reason I say that is because it's easy to be courageous when you lose 25% of $10,000 when you're 25 or 35 years old. But it feels a lot different if you're losing 25% of half a million dollars later in life. And we've seen this. It is very real. I've seen some of the most courageous people in bull markets fold like a cheap chair when there's a bear market happening. And if they, if they get three or four or five statements in a row where the markets were declining, 2000, 2001, 2002, that was a long bear market period with multiple things contributing to it. 2008, 2000, actually fourth quarter of 2007 through first quarter of 2009, almost 18 months of just 
down and down and down. And people call you up and they say, I, I, I'm calling you because my statement is, I'm, my account's going down, down, down. They never say it four times. They never say it two times. It's always three times. And what I figured out is maybe it's that they're looking, they see three statements in a row that are negative and that's when it triggers their, their panic. You need to understand that this stuff is the price of admission. You're going to have a bumpy ride if you're in the equity markets. If you're in risky long-term assets, the long-term results can be great over time, but the ride will be bumpier. You, you get turbulence on a flight to California from Chicago. It can happen. It's still the fastest, most effective, and it's statistically the safest way to get there. Back to the book. The question is, why do so many people who are willing to pay the price of cars, houses, food, and vacations try so hard to avoid paying the price of good investment returns? The answer is simple. The price of investing success is not immediately obvious. It's not a price tag you can see. So when the bill comes due, it doesn't feel like a fee for getting something good. It feels like a fine for doing something wrong. And while people are generally fine with paying fees, fines are supposed to be avoided. You're supposed to make decisions that preempt and avoid fines. Traffic fines and IRS fines mean you did something wrong and deserve to be punished. The natural response for anyone who watches their wealth decline and views that drop as a fine is to avoid future fines. It sounds trivial, but thinking of market volatility as a fee rather than a fine is an important part of developing the kind of mindset that lets you stick around long enough for investing gains to work in your favor. Few investors have the disposition to say, I'm actually fine if I lose 20% of my money. This is doubly true for new investors who have never experienced a 20, even a 20% decline. And we talked about that a few minutes ago. That's 100% accurate in my experience. Everyone can talk a good game until they actually get hit for real. And then they understand. And it's sad because you, it's, you could learn from the wisdom of others or learn from others' bad experiences and trust in that. But like our children, some, sometimes you got to learn things the hard way, right? Yep. Back to the book. Disneyland tickets cost $100, but you get an awesome day with your kids you'll never forget. Last year, more than 18 million people thought that fee was worth paying. Few felt the $100 was a punishment or a fine. The worthwhile trade-off of fees is obvious when it's clear you're paying one. Same with investing, where volatility is almost always a fee, not a fine. Market returns are never free and never will be. They demand you pay a price like any other product. You're not forced to pay this fee, just like you're not forced to go to Disneyland. You can go to the local county fair where tickets might be $10 or stay home for free. You might still have a good time, but you'll usually get what you pay for. Same with the markets. The volatility or uncertainty fee, the price of returns, is the cost of admission to get returns greater than the low fee parks like cash and bonds. The trick is convincing yourself that the market's fee is worth it. That's the only way to properly deal with volatility and uncertainty. Not just putting up with it, but realizing it's an admission fee worth paying. There's no guarantee that it will be. Sometimes it rains at Disneyland. But if you view the admission fee as a fine, you'll never enjoy the magic. Find the price and pay it. This is risk tolerance. 
it's risk tolerance and it's understanding the long-term nature of this thing. When you're investing, again, we keep going back to this. People try to evaluate things in the shortest period of time possible, ideally. And that makes sense. Ideally, you want to decide, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? And the most readily available thing that's, a, that's there is, how did my account do last month? Oh, it's down? Oh, it must be a bad strategy. Oh, it's been a bad year? Oh, it must be a bad strategy. Oh, I lagged the blah, blah, blah index. It must be a bad strategy for that one period of time. Or I crushed, on the other flip side of the coin, I crushed that index over the last six months. And this is just the way, this is, I found the new Rosetta Stone to financial success. Look, it's doing so well. All I have to do is buy that thing that's gone up so much and it'll keep on going. Under, we, we need to understand and re keep reminding ourselves of the long-term nature of long-term assets. And when we say long-term, honestly, it's 20 years or more before these averages work themselves out typically. There could be short periods of time in between where things are just chaotic, and they tend to be. They tend to appear chaotic sometimes. But he's right. That's the price of admission. Throughout the book, he talks about humility. We'll talk about it a couple, a couple places, but here... You know, one of the things we need to realize is that we're all human and we're all susceptible to errors in our judgment. I mean, the psychology, that's what psychology is. It's just what's going on in our heads. And even the greatest investors, even the greatest investors of all time have had periods like three years in a row where they've completely not done well. We just need to recognize that if that can happen to the greatest of all investors, maybe we need to kind of check our ego a little bit. But he talks in the book here, optimism bias in risk-taking or, quote, Russian roulette should statistically work syndrome. It's an attachment to favorable odds when the downside is unacceptable in any circumstance. So he's pulling this from Nassim Taleb about ruin, financial ruin. The odds are in your favor, but if you lose, you lose huge. You had a client back in... 1999-2000, he doubled down on his company stock after it had taken off. And thinking of this Russian roulette makes me think about that experience you shared it, a while it, ago. He, he, he literally put too much in one thing. In fact, took, uh, took on debt to, to buy that one thing that was near its peak. And uh, yeah, I don't know how that story ended, but he lost an awful lot of money at least in that NASDAQ bubble pop. Again, you just, you got to have a, a room for error. You can't, you can't overestimate how important it is to give yourself wiggle room because stuff's going to happen. There's going to be surprises. Things are going to happen along the way that you did not predict. That's the whole nature of a surprise. You had no idea. And guess what? You talk to anybody that's been around this planet long enough They'll all tell you they've gotten surprised over time. Stuff has happened. Be humble because you just don't know. You don't know. Another topic here, you know, I'll, I'll call it keeping your money requires different skills than earning it. You know, when we're all growing up and all throughout our society, there's this focus on how do you make money? How do you make money? You know, I go to school to go to college to get a good education, to get a good job, to go make money. Or we worship entrepreneurs because they make a lot of money. Or we worship celebrities because they make a lot of money. And that's only one piece of the coin. Once you make it, you got to keep it. How many times have we seen celebrities who've gone broke or gone bankrupt? Because they didn't know how to keep it. They made millions and millions and millions of dollars. And there's some people that have gone bankrupt. Some celebrities have gone bankrupt multiple times. 
But who do we worship? We worship people who can make a lot of money, who have high income. And we're always searching for how do we find the best investment system, the best trading system or whatever to make money. And I'll tell you a little secret that an, an advisor told me years ago that was older than me. Advisors don't make people rich. They keep them rich. And Morgan's hitting on hitting this nail right on the head. This from the book. There are a million ways to get wealthy and plenty of books on how to do so, but there's only one way to stay wealthy. It's some combination of frugality and paranoia. Getting money requires taking risks, being optimistic, and putting yourself out there. But keeping money requires the opposite of taking risks. It requires humility and fear that what you've made can be taken away from you just as fast. It requires frugality and an acceptance that at least some of what you've made is attributable to luck. So past success can't be relied upon to repeat indefinitely. No matter how much you want to love risk and pay the price for that risk, you need to plan for that and give yourself room for error so that you can survive long enough to get the real benefit of the compounding. That's what he's talking about here. Margin for error, room for error. It doesn't mean somebody's being an old fogey. It doesn't mean somebody's being too conservative. It's just that someone who's telling you, you need to have a margin for error. Maybe save a little more. Maybe be a little more humble. Maybe be a little more careful. They're not being overly conservative. If they're telling you to be frugal, they're not telling you you have to live like a pauper. You don't have to live below the pottery, the poverty line to be frugal. You simply have to live beneath your means. That's not like an old guy, okay, boomer type situation. That's just literally wisdom that's lasted throughout the ages. And Morgan's talking about that here. You want to take risk, but you need to know what know it and understand it well enough that you can survive. And that's the key. That's where we'll wrap up part two here. And we'll be back with part three next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends. Please subscribe. Please like. Please comment. Please find us on social media. We are at Fierce Fiduciary. You can also Google Fierce Fiduciary Podcast and find us anywhere. Dan, you're at from Facebook. I'm on Facebook. At Dan Albert. Dan.Albert. And I am at Brian C. Beasley on most platforms. We also participate in some Facebook groups. If you're looking to have a deeper conversation there about various things, there's a group called Investing for Beginners. And then Dan and I host a group called Investing and Financial Planning that provides some educational and learning material. So once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.